However old you are, this is probably going to be one of the most memorable years of your life. We may find ourselves in years to come talking about life BC and AC, before and after COVID. At the beginning of the year, a new decade, we were expecting a dramatic US election, an Olympics in Tokyo, and long negotiations over Brexit. What we didn't expect was a worldwide pandemic, which would paralyze the planet. But despite all the difficulties, there were wonderful moments of kindness and calm. People found ways of coming together through technology. Nature had a moment to breathe and volunteers gave up their time and energy for the greater good. But what was it like for CGTN's reporters trying to keep others up to date with events? In this one-off podcast special, we ask our CGTN Europe correspondents how 2020 was for them. Let's start in Brussels, where CGTN's Tony Waterman had made her base early in the year. I was actually just arriving in Belgium. I arrived here only a couple of weeks before the virus uh, arrived itself. So uh, not long after that, the nationwide lockdown came into effect. So I was probably unpacking most of my stuff and moving into a new apartment when we went into lockdown. This was a new experience and literally overnight in March, Brussels, which is the hub of European power, it became a ghost town. So the office buildings were deserted, the roads were silent, the shops were all closed, uh, the schools were shutting down. It was really unlike anything anyone has ever seen before. Well, I think that in the very early stages of this pandemic, when we didn't understand much about it, we didn't understand how deadly it was, how quickly it was spreading, how exactly it was spreading, everybody was incredibly scared and nervous to begin with. So that was one of the major challenges because you're dealing with that as a human being and as an individual, and you're also trying to tell that story to people and keep them uh, informed. Over the border in France, CGTN's Ross Cullen was also a new arrival. I moved to Paris to be a correspondent here in January. It was only a couple of weeks of coverage before the news about the coronavirus in Europe started to take hold. And then we saw that France had confirmed the first case of what was at that time a new type of coronavirus in Europe. And then the numbers just climbed and climbed and it became apparent in late February that the governments in Europe, across Europe, were going to have to act. We went to Italy at the very start of March and so that was the country that uh, had already implemented kind of little mini lockdowns in certain areas of the north. And to see Italy and France, which are two real countries, that have such an emphasis on culture, sitting outside, getting together, kissing and shaking hands with friends, with colleagues, meeting, drinks, coffees outside on the terrace. To see that side shut down so quickly when the lockdowns came in, uh, that was a, a real kind of point of impact for, for restaurants in particular and cafes, which is such a, a staple sign of culture in, in both France and Italy. Rahul Patak in Spain was also reporting on how the pandemic was changing the way our cities looked and operated. 
As we reach the end of 2020, we've almost forgotten just how terrifying it was in early spring, with food running low in shops and confusion about how the virus was spread. How fast we had to adapt to a new way of living. So I was in the, sitting in a cafe in one of the busiest streets in Madrid. It's called Calle de Atocha. And I was seeing on my phone the alerts coming up about the increasing number of infections. It was going up hour by hour. It's just like, oh, well, this is turning into a really big story. Uh, and I looked out on the street. It was emptying out, like, bit by bit. Almost like there was this invisible thing coming along. In the UK, attention was already shifting to the speed in which the government was reacting to the crisis. Nawija Barkil, based in London, watched as the entire nation locked down and the death tolls started to mount. We had insight about how quickly other parts of the world were closing down, seeing how much criticism the UK government was facing at the time, especially around not closing their borders, for example, around the shortage of PPE supplies, all of that led to a sense that perhaps it was a ticking time bomb. And we, I think we actually saw that with deaths peaking more than a thousand a day around April and May, just a few weeks later. While Spain, Italy, Belgium, France and the UK were being battered by the virus, other countries were coping relatively well in stemming the spread of COVID-19. Linda Kennedy is based in Budapest. Hungary did seem to do quite well in the first wave of coronavirus. It's a country with just under 10 million people. And by the end of August, it had only reported about 6,000 confirmed cases and 615 coronavirus-related deaths. Uh, the, the Hungarian government re lifted restrictions early and for much of the summer, all the restaurants and bars and gyms, even better, were open. But September brought a COVID resurgence and the number of daily new cases increased rapidly. So the borders were shut again. And the current situation is that there's about 4,000 and 6,000 uh, new infections every day. CGTN reporters were able to report on the pandemic during lockdowns. Ingenious staff found ways of making their own personal protective equipment and worked tirelessly to keep the public informed about what was going on. I remember we were key workers, so we were one of very few people who were, who were able to move around in that lockdown and driving to, to and from work, which was the safest way to get there at the time. You'd hear the occasional ambulance siren and that was really it. There were lots of sirens running around London um, and on the radio every time I'd flick the radio on you'd hear the government warnings in adverts every other advert was a government warning reiterating the government's slogan um, to stay at home protect the NHS and save lives and looking back at it now that I think there was one word to sum up how I felt then it would probably be was probably be eerie the, the whole experience was, was was quite eerie covering the news then it's the sort of things you read about about people living through world wars, for example, in the history books, but you don't really expect it to, to happen in our lifetime. As journalists, we were allowed to continue working. We set up um, a studio uh, inside my home for me, my cameraman, he was at his home. So all of a sudden, the way that we worked was completely turned on its head. And like everyone else, we had to find these new ways of trying to make it work. We had to figure out uh, how to cover what was and still is the world's biggest story from inside our homes. 
of course, we were still able to go out on a number of, uh, of stories, but even the filming of those stories became quite difficult. We had to use these long poles to maintain distance between ourselves and the people that we're interviewing. Um, some people were quite hesitant about meeting in person or even stopping to speak with us on the street, but we're able to find ways to tell these stories to work around some of those challenges. For many, the lockdowns gave people time to stop and think, to reorder their priorities. In Paris, as in many cities, people came together, at a safe distance of course, to give thanks to the health professionals and service workers trying to save lives and keep society running. There was a lot of community spirit as well that I would, you know, say that maybe there wasn't before. People sharing in, in, you know, videos to like how to bake bread. And, and here in France, actually, we had the clap for the healthcare workers every day at 8 p.m. And every day you knew at five to eight, you'd open your windows, uh, stand on a balcony if you had one, and see other people reminded of the spirit that other people as well who'd deliberately, you know, choosing to stay home, follow the government's advice, try to control the spread. And then another side of community spirit, like there were opera singers who were at eight o'clock would, 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 would sing for the whole street and people would enjoy a bit of music. People might play the violin if they had one or play the trumpet. There was also people around the corner from me, one street down. I remember I used to go out for a run sometimes, uh, my one hour of exercise uh, in the early evening, and I'd come back just as the eight o'clock, the applause was starting to happen. And the, they had a flat, an apartment on the top floor of a building here in Paris, near the park where I, where I live, near the River Seine. And they had speakers, they had a whole DJ set. And for five minutes at 8 p.m. every day, they didn't do applause. They played loud party music deliberately. I mean, if it were any other time of day, any other circumstances, the police would have closed them down straight away. But because it was five minutes trying to lift the spirits, uh, we really saw that in the, in the, in the first lockdown. has been one one thing to take away. Aside from that, it's just been a general appreciation of sectors of the society that um, perhaps have been ignored or, or taken for granted for a long time. That's something that's really been positive out of this pandemic. I think here in the UK, we had this thing called Clap for Carers. Every Thursday, people got out on their balconies or they got outside the fronts of their house and basically just grabbed a tin, grabbed a wooden spoon, clapped, made as much noise as they possibly could and that went on for several weeks. It happened periodically throughout the year as well and basically it was about showing appreciation for the frontline workers fighting the virus. That's not just those people in the health industry but the likes of postmen delivering posts about the pandemic or supermarket workers stocking shelves throughout the pandemic. So I think a newfound appreciation for, for those sorts of jobs which had traditionally been underpaid but as the pandemic showed are incredibly important to the to society. In Spain, lockdown was extremely tough and caused something of a rift between generations. I'll give you an example of how strict it was. You used to go outside and do your shopping, your food shopping, which was obviously it was allowed. Police would come and stop you and look in your shopping bag to see you'd actually been shopping. A lot of people in Spain, when, when, when you go into lockdown, a lot of people in Spain live in apartments. You're locked in your flat, that's it. There's no back garden. There's no nowhere to kind of stretch your legs. You are literally locked in your flat unless you're going shopping and doing all the things that you're allowed to do. 
So I think for, for young people that was really, really difficult. So when they went out, they really went out a lot and they went into clubs and there was lots of them together. And then in retrospect, they think that was one of the major factors in terms of the spread of the second wave. And you could see a definite split between older people and younger people. There are old people saying, you guys are not being responsible and you are giving us the virus. And you know, there's a lot of antagonism there. The French found the concept of lockdown particularly challenging. Ross Cullen again. President Macron has, has, has spoken about this several times throughout the year. The word liberty is in actually in the national slogan of France. Uh, so the idea uh, of moving about, uh, it's enshrined in the constitution, it's in the motto, liberty, uh, the idea of restricting people, confining people, uh, keep it staying inside, don't use public transport, um, etc., was a tough one for the government to call culturally, uh, historically, but that's the road they chose. Uh, and yeah, it came in pretty sharpish as well. Though the pandemic is a global news story, like nothing seen in living memory, the way it has been dealt with from country to country has been a topic of huge interest. Belgium has been hit very hard by the virus, with one of the highest death rates per head of population. Tony Waterman has been trying to investigate why the country has suffered so badly. I mean, I guess the big thing for Belgium is that power is really decentralized. And so what's happening in the Flemish region can be completely different than what's happening in the French region, can be completely different from what's happening in Brussels. There's nine health ministers. I mean, it becomes a, quite a patchwork of different rules and regulations that are in place. And during the first lockdown, even the individual communes were coming up with their own restrictions and their own, own rules. And so, you know, you could cross the street and be you know, having to follow a, dif a completely different set of rules than you had to if you were on the other side of the street because it just happened to be in a different uh, commune. So that was one of, I guess, one of the quirky things uh, about Belgium. Nawi Jabarkil in the UK says it was at times difficult to find positives in all the terrible news and statistics. He, like other reporters, couldn't help but be inspired by some of the remarkable things people were doing and inventing to help others during the crisis. Early on in the pandemic, I remember speaking to some East Asians in Britain, also some Brits who were born and raised here, um, second, third generation Chinese who said that they'd experienced racism. That was quite early on. Then we spoke to people who'd lost their loved ones in the pandemic. And then we, a few weeks later, I remember we spoke to a company up in the Scottish Highlands who were using drones to deliver medicine and COVID tests to the most remote parts of the UK. So that's just an example of how many interesting stories there were to tell during this year. In Spain, Rahul Patak says the pandemic has helped bring opposing political parties together. The problem in this country, any government, especially this one, they were trying to pass a budget with all these programs to help poverty in Spain. And the other side would always just vote it down. So they hadn't had a budget passed in three years. Ironically, the thing that they did get a budget passed about three weeks ago, and the thing that made that budget get passed, coronavirus. Because the coronavirus pandemic, it's such a crisis, a lot of parties just had to say, we need to get the budget through, otherwise we are going to go down the plug hole as a country. So there were a lot of parties that would normally not even speak to each other, were actually voting together to get this budget passed. So they've approved the budget and it's got record spending on social care, on health care, on improving the infrastructure, on, on alleviating poverty. 
So actually, that's one of the few, very few good things that's come out of this pandemic is they might be able to deal with the extreme poverty in this country. So looking ahead to 2021, how do the CGTN correspondents feel about the places they are reporting on? Is there hope in the vaccine, in reigniting economies? Let's start with Rahul Patak in Spain. The vaccine uh, positivity around it in Spain has collapsed. It's really low. Less than half now would say they would take that vaccine straight away. Spain has actually been one of the countries that's always had very, very high take-up rates. So that's why these figures are so surprising. In Hungary, there's also some controversy over the coronavirus vaccines. Here's Linda Kennedy again. The Hungarian government was the first Western country to bring in samples of the Russian vaccine, the Sputnik vaccine, and that's turned into an opportunity for them to rile the EU because they're refusing to say whether or not there are any plans to license and market it here, which would flout EU rules which require the European Medicines Agency to approve any drugs sold in member states. So I think that there's no approved vaccines in Hungary yet, but when they come, there is a row about the fact that people will not be able to choose which vaccine they get. So it might be one of the ones that's you know, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which has been approved in the UK and is on its way to being approved elsewhere. Or who knows, it might be the Russian one. People in Hungary, as in many places in Europe, are worried about how their economy will survive the pandemic. And many businesses there are receiving no bailout from the government. Budapest has got these amazing heritage cafes and confectioners and Ischler is one of their best sellers. But because the border's closed and tourism has come to a standstill, most of these places have lost about 90% of their custom. And they say that without government help, they can't survive. But it's about much more than cakes because unlike other countries, there's been hardly any state help for Hungarian businesses and they say they really need that in 2021. So I think that next year in Hungary is gonna be about deep economic troubles resulting from the coronavirus. The country just got a curfew extension for Christmas, which is not much of a gift. I think like most nations, there were more than a few Hungarians that were secretly hoping that restrictions were gonna be lifted over Christmas, but no. There was already an 8pm to 5am curfew and it's now going to stay until January the 11th. So Santa Claus risks breaking the curfew as well as mixing households. The result is that only 10 people can get together this year, so no big family knees-ups in Hungary. In many other places, there will be a smaller, shorter Christmas. In France and Belgium, they're hoping the vaccines could be a game-changer. Will it have a successful vaccination programme? How will that mm. go? Uh, because like the UK, France is going to start with the most fragile, the vulnerable population, and then eventually, maybe towards the end of late spring, roll out the vaccine to availability for, for the wider population. The vaccination programmes are starting. They've already started in the UK. They're going to be starting here in Europe in the next couple of weeks. And this is when the economies really have a chance to take off again. Tony Waterman in Brussels, ending our correspondence roundup for 2020. And we'll be hearing more from our team of CGTN Europe reporters on TV and online at cgtn.com forward slash Europe. Don't forget you can catch up with our correspondence reports online 
and tell us about your experience of 2020 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Wherever you are in lockdown or not, wishing you a happy new year. <laughs>